mighty text. Father, thank you for this chapter in this Bible of ours. Um, we learn a lot of you, and we learn a lot about man. You are glorious and perfect and do not compromise, and man has fallen and always compromises. And so we see your reaction, both in your judgment, but also in your grace. Always two wonderful things of you, your holy judgment, but your grace is always with you. And so we ask that you would encourage us through this and uh, help us to think about how you think about sin, how we think about it, how we respond to sin in our own life and sin in others' lives, and how legalism works into that and where grace is involved as well, Lord. So lots to think about tonight as we look at this passage. We ask you would help us, Lord. Be with those who couldn't be here. There are some sick and um, going through some procedures. Some are in the hospital, Lord, and some are ready to go home to be with you very shortly, Lord. And we just pray for strength. We pray for their families as they surround them these last days, Lord. Give them strength, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Numbers 25, we've... We're working our way to the end and kind of the last couple of narratives and then some laws and different things that happen. But we've just come off of 23 and 24 where we, we have the story of Balaam and Balak and then the great prophecies of, of Balaam. You know, they're really the great prophecies of God going through a wicked uh, prophet. Um, and, and, and we said this last week, he's just in prison. His mouth is imprisoned to God. He only can say what, what God will let him to say. And I, I love that. Uh, um, and yet, then all of a sudden, we come off these stunning prophecies, and they're particularly glaring as they point to the coming Messiah in so many ways. Uh, in in chapter twenty four, particularly, and then we come to this revelation of this very dark, sinful, absolutely pagan uh, involvement with the nation of Israel with with pagan nations. And it's amazing. And you just go from one to the other. And, it, and this is the only place it happens. I mean, we see this throughout the scriptures. Remember when, when God's given the law of Moses there at Sinai. He gives them the law of Moses in chapter 20. And by chapter 32, they're bowing down to a golden calf. <laughs> this great news that God is going to be their God. He is going to bring them into the promised land. He's going to give them his law and, and, and give them a way to come to him and be right with him and... Moses can't get off the mountain and they're worshiping a golden bull calf. So we see this happen. And so the sins that are committed in the wilderness of Sinai seem to be repeated now in the wilderness of Moab. I think it just tells us, as I prayed there, it highlights the sinfulness of man and the graciousness of God. And, and yet, God is gracious, but we see very clearly that sin carries with it the wages of sin and often those are death. Now, this theme kind of carries throughout the Bible. I was just kind of thinking how we see things. You know, King David in 1 Samuel has given us great promises, isn't he? He's given the covenant of God, an everlasting covenant. From his seed, one will rule forever, you know, pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ and so forth. And it's not within a few chapters he has a sin with Bathsheba. And you go, wow, great statements of the faithfulness of God and all God's going to do. And then next we see man, what does he do? He falls into deep, deep consequential sin, right? Hosea marries a prostitute and shortly after abandons him. Oh, this is great. What a beautiful picture. And she abandons him. 
The prophets remind the nation over and over this great covenant God has made with them. And they repeatedly, each time, fall again back into idolatry. Then you move to the New Testament. I've got to think about this a little bit. Jesus rolls in on what we call Palm Sunday. He's worshipped and giving a Messiah-type welcome on Sunday. And they kill him on Friday. This is man. They mock him at his death on Friday. And he resurrects from the dead on Sunday, beating sin, Satan, and death. And so picture after picture shows us of the glories of God, the impeccable character of God. His, his character is seen through all of those stories. And then you see the wickedness of man, and God just continues on with man. It just reminds us how great a God we have. And I think as believers, we just marvel at this grace of God in the face of mankind's most incorrigible, blatant propensity to reject God. And there he is, constantly. And look, you can't help but think of this and go, I hope. And you go, "Mm, yeah, that's me. I mean, how much have you sinned since you've been saved? When we disciple people, they say, Pastor, I'm sinning more now than I ever did before I was saved. Well, you're more aware of it now. There's a spirit of God dwelling in you, and there is, there is this God who says, this is my temple. And now the things that did not bother you before salvation now become very evident in your life. But, but God has saved us from our sins. I, I, I can't, one of the favorite passages I love preaching on a lot, you've heard me preach on this and talk about it a lot, is Titus chapter 3. Just listen, uh, not time to run there, but t- Titus 3, 3. Listen to how Paul does this. For we, that's a really good pronoun, him, I, everybody else included since a believer, for we also once were foolish ourselves. Paul never forgets where God brought him from. It's a warning, right? Because as soon as you forget where you came from, pride, arrogance, and legalism will come right in. So Paul says, we also once were foolish ourselves. Well, how bad was it? I mean, how bad was I? disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts, pleasures, spending our life in malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another. How about that? Well, that's not me. Yeah, it was. It was you and me in every aspect. All hidden in our heart and our mind, all there ready to come out and live it out, and sometimes did if it wasn't for the grace of God, was it? And so he says out of that, then he goes, but, another great conjunction of Paul, when the kindness and I love the, the way he says this. Of our God and Savior. That chi there is an and that links God and Christ together in equality there. Our God and Savior. And his love for mankind. Now, I just told you all these stories are evil and graciousness of God and graciousness of God and evil man. Out of, out of the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind. That just staggers me when I think about it. As I read these stories and I've worked on this sermon this week, I thought, oh, mankind is just wicked to the core. But God loves him. God loves mankind. And then verse 5 says, he saved us, not based on deeds which we have done in righteousness. Well, that's for sure, right? But according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, the King James says, lavishly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. There's that word Savior again. So that being justified, declared righteous by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It goes from verse 3 of the depth of our wickedness to heirs with Jesus Christ for eternal life. 
Isn't that amazing? I don't know about you. I just never, never get tired of the gospel. I'm just so encouraged by that. Yeah. Enslaved in all kinds of various lusts and pleasures. And now I have the keys of the kingdom through Jesus Christ. That's you. That's me. That's what God does for us. You just get overwhelmed when you kind of think about that for a little while. Meditate on that. Well, as we turn our attention to Numbers 25, look, there's a lot of events that may take place that aren't recorded, right? Certainly they're wandering around for 40 uh, years, and we just have a few chapters on that. But it is striking to me. And when I study this, I go, God, why did you choose this event? Why did you inspire the record and inspire Moses to pen this one down? This is graphic, this passage. This is ugly. This is sexual sin at its highest, right, or lowest. And God chooses to put it down. And and again, we see these parallels from beginning at Mount Sinai to the wandering in the plains of Moab. And there's this propensity for this nation to reject the grace of God and reject covenants that he's made with them and all the laws and sacrifices and festivals and all the senses that help them understand that God wants this unmerited, gracious relationship with them. And yet they go back to their vomit. Golden calves, harlotry with Balaam, or and so forth. And it just teaches us the character of God, that he's unchanging no matter what the circumstances are, but it also teaches us that man is wicked, left to himself. Now think about this, the older generation that sinned in Sinai and their first trip to the border, they're, they're dying off. But it seems, you think, you think, okay, they've learned, the second generation's coming along. This is the second generation, mostly. This is the new generation that's falling into this sin. So it tells you that man has this propensity to leave the God that he says he loves and fall into sin. And that's why we have to guard our hearts. And this is why we study and read and put ourselves under preaching and teaching in our own Bible study and our, and our worship, both personal and public. We need that, right? Because there's a propensity in us to look at something that God says no and desire it, right? God said no, Eve. (laughs) Well, it looks good. It's good for wisdom, and it's going to make us like God. That all desire to be little gods is still there, and we battle these things. But God is immutable in his love, in his grace, in his changelessness, and and we see this over and over. Let's, Let's dive into three thoughts today in this wild uh, event that takes place here open sin and the reaction of god's high priest open sin and those are some key words i think as we'll go here you're going to see this and then the reaction of god's high priest and of course you know i'm going to tie this in the christ so get ready but let's look at the scene here verse one while israel is still in shittim the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of moab now shittim was a Final encampment. You can see this throughout the scriptures. You can go to uh, chapter 33, verse 49. You'll see that they're gathering there. They're still there. This is where they're going to stay. They're going to be there till they go across the Jordan and take out Jericho. Then they're going to come back and forth, back and forth. And you can see it in Joshua. This, this encampment is named many times because they, this is the home base. They're going to go from this encampment. Joshua chapter 2, you'll see it. They're right there, and then they go in and, and 
fight uh, Jericho and all of those things. But what's graphic in this first verse here is notice this phrase began to play the harlot. That grabs your attention, doesn't it? I mean, certainly that phrase is both physical and spiritual. And there's implications to it, right? The Hebrew word here for harlotry is one who goes into the house of a prostitute with the goal of sexual relationships. That's the word. And that's essentially what Israel is doing. They're going into another house, not God's house. Not the one that they are now betrothed to and and have this relationship with. They're going to another. And so as we come to this, and particularly with um, Midianites and Moabites and the Canaanites, their, their prostitution was really central to their worship. It was a, as a vital part. This is how pagan it, it was. And people say, Scott, I just have such a problem that God comes in and wipes out entire cities and men and women and children. This is absolute corruption from top to bottom that these people were engaged in. Baal was a god of fertility. And what they would do is commit sexual acts in front of this dead god in hopes that he would give them children. And then if they got children, they would take a portion of those children and burn them back to the god of Baal. This is absolutely at the bottom of the barrel of humanity. People say, when people are just getting worse, really? I don't think so. I think from the garden in chapter 3, they got to the bottom and they've been there ever since. And we were there too if it was not for the grace of God. And so this is what they're up against. Verse 2, look at this. For they invited the people, this is the daughters of Moab and Midianites, the people, they invited the people to sacrifice to their God, his gods, and the people ate, here's the result of it, they ate and they bowed down to their gods. It's the same thing they did with the golden gold. Uh, the, golden bull calf they bow down to it now some of the israelites here clearly some of them and we'll see that it isn't every one of them they're invited and, and really allured into this participation with these pagan sacrifices and they feast and they bow down the text says here before these dead gods of their enemies these are their enemies these are the ones that are trying to curse them and kill them in the last couple of chapters and the enemies of God are constantly alluring God's people, aren't they? I, I thought about this much as I was writing this. I said, and you've probably heard me say this before, I don't think Satan works overtime on those headed for hell. <laughs> He's pretty much got them going, right? They're, they're controlled by the flesh. There's no spirit of God within them. So the flesh goes, hey, go over here, go over here. They just go wherever the flesh tells them. So Satan really works really well with them. What he's after is God's people. And so he, he always is trying to allure God's people away from the things of God into the things of, of his, right? The, the debauchery and sinfulness of man. You feel this pull, don't you? You have a mind that will wander sometimes to things that you know are wrong. There's a propensity for that. And Satan loves to be a part of those. He loves to put things up. And I mean, you just watch what he's doing in media and stuff now. It just, you know that's of him. And this is what he does. But there's a spiritual implication here as well. It's revealing the hearts of those who are, who I think of two groups. One striving for the Lord. We're going to see some that are weeping in the temple before the temple. And then he's exposing the hearts of those who have no love for God. They're not pursuing God with their, all their heart, their soul, their might, and their strength. And they're not pursuing them. 
And look, notice they're bowing down in this text. They're their enemies' gods. And right there, think about this, they broke the first and second commandment right away. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not bow down to them or serve them. They're not across the line yet, and they've already broken these two commands. You would think, back to the desert with you for 40 years. But that's not what God does. Notice back in verse 1 again, we're told this harlotry was done with the daughters of Moab. I want to make sure we're clear here. Um, as we read the previous chapters, it was really clear that Moab and the Midianites were united together. United in their hatred and fear of the nation of Israel. And thus we see, as we, the story goes on, we see that the woman who was killed with the Israelite man, she's a Midianite. And you'll remember that Balak had taken Balaam, and remember he took him up on a high place where Baal was being worshipped, where there were these shrines, there was these places there, because he wanted them to see the nation of Israel there. Um, but he took them up, and you remember, they were there at the place of worship before Balaam, and they built those altars there. So it seems that the Moabs and the Midianites are worshiping probably at the same shrines, the same temples uh, where Baal, Baal is being worshipped. Now, notice verse 3. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. Now, this word joined, um, the Hebrew word, Tasmad, Tasmad is the word there um, that we translate, and some of our translations joined it. It's actually used of uh, hitching up uh, a wagon to animals. You know, and it, it, it's it's fairly graphic, right? They bind themselves, they commit themselves to it, they join themselves, and and by participating with these these daughters of Moab, these enemies of Israel, they yoke themselves to the dead God of Baal, and they became unequally yoked to God at that moment, to the living God. So they left the living God to yoke themselves up to dead gods. And again, we know this is a flagrant rejection of God. It's a clear uh, despising of his covenant that he made with them. And, and I think everybody would agree this is totally totally apart from the Lord. They, and they had agreed, right? They had stood before God and said, we, in chapter, Exodus chapter 20, after the commands, we will do all that the Lord has commanded us. But each time they break this covenant, the wages of sin brings death. And we saw it in the, the golden bull calf. Many thousands died. And in this case, we'll see in verse 9 that some plague is breaking out during the middle of this and 24,000 people are killed. But the same problem was in the New Testament. As we worked our way through 1 Corinthians, we saw that the Corinth church was still doing some of these acts that were not of God, right? They would go and be involved with these pagan temples. And so Paul tells them in 1 Corinthians 6.15, do, do you not know that your body are members of Christ? Have you forgotten I taught you that? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? This is in the New Testament. This is the church of Jesus Christ. This is the birth of the church, the first century. Paul says, may it never be, or do you not know that one who joins himself, there's our word, joins himself to a prostitute is one with her. There's oneness there. He says, two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Paul has to tell them that. 
He gets into 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. He says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have the righteous and the lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And then the word join, such a beautiful word because it comes right out of the commands of marriage that we find in the garden before the fall in chapter 2 of Genesis. But Paul takes that and he gives some clarity to that when he says in Ephesians 5.31, For this reason a man will, shall leave his father and mother, leave everything, the start of his new life, um, his starting, and he shall be joined to his wife. These are clear commands, clear wordage that God uses throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, to something that is very precious that God has set aside for a man and a woman to become one flesh. This is what's taking place here. But notice the Lord is angry. He's angry with us. God is not happy with sin, ever. I I think one of the ways I, I really try to wake myself up when I'm struggling with sinful tendencies in my life is I remind myself is Scott that sin Jesus had to die for I just have to remind myself of that. So, you know how yeah, it may, whatever it is whatever your things that you struggle with sometimes we can just go on and we may justify them or dismiss them or whatever we do with them but when you want to get real with your sin you have to see Christ hanging on that cross for that sin and realize that he and he alone forgave them why would I want to continue in this That's the graciousness of God. God's angry with that sin. All that sin is going to put his son on the cross. All of that is contrary to him. God is angry. And notice he's angry with his people. He's angry with Israel. Look at verses 4 and 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, here's what he's going to do. Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each one of you slay his men whom have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Now, clearly, there's a plague started, right? You can see this. And there's some kind of plague going on. People are dying. And in order to stop the plague, there was given this exemplary punishment. Notice it says, take all the leaders of the people, execute them, and do it in broad daylight before the Lord. Well, there's a novel idea. Think that would help? I think it would help greatly. And, I, and this is capital punishment at the, with a capital C, right? And it's an example. It's a deterrent for sin. And these leaders were they're probably, probably um, maybe not the judges because the judges are involved in this, but probably tribal family leaders within each tribe. And we see that because the man, Zimri, is, a, is from the Simeonites, and his father's a leader in there. And he's, I mean, it's just, we'll get into this in a minute. He's just total rejection of his own father, let alone God. So these are probably leaders of, of subgroups and family groups within each tribe, and they're to be killed. And then corporately, the whole nation now is falling under judgment because not only are the leaders being killed, but there's a plague going and, and thousands of people are, are dying. So it seems not all individuals are participating in it, but the representatives are going to have to make atonement for this. They must die. Now, someone says, well, is that fair? Um, kids are 
doing wicked things and the dads die. Um, I, I think it's a narrative. We don't understand who's doing what at this point. But whatever went on in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, actually there God gave M Moses another law that only those who commit the sins die. And so even after this, it comes down to that. And I don't, I don't think anybody died who wasn't a sinner in that case. But there was a lot of people who write on that and are bothered by that. Now, whatever the case was and who was dying and who wasn't, the scriptures don't clearly tell us. But the command of punishment of the leaders was there probably in any case because they didn't restrain the ones who were going to do it. Well, hey, I didn't do it. Well, did you do anything to stop it? And see that this was a, a, a flagrant uh, a flagrant sin against your covenant God. Well, no, I didn't do anything about it. <laughs> and, and so, in worst case scenario, they're guilty for that, of letting this happen. This own father, whose son, who brings, you'll see, there's no care. He brings it right into where the people at the temple can actually see it. It's now become just blatant and flagrant. Notice in verse 5 that, Moses seems to give somewhat of a, a, a different command. I'm not sure that there's commentators I read that suggest that Moses changed the command of God but, and only executed those who violated it. I, I, I think you have to be careful there. We, Moses is not Moses' custom to do something different than what God says, and when he did, he lost his entrance into the land. Um, but certainly, as, we, as we'll see, there was those directly violating the covenant. They, they were killed. Now, he uses the word there in verse 4, execute. It's an interesting word. Because I, I, of, you know, what we do now today, you know, death penalties are very hard to get to. Only several states uh, still carry them out, even though they're on most laws in most states. Um, I was just interested in it. And so I, I chased down that Hebrew word, and it's actually translated many times to hang someone. Um, but it wasn't hanging like you see in your, you know, everyday Clint Eastwood uh, uh, movie. <laughs> they actually impaled them on uh, long spears, impaled them, and then set those spears, these big poles, into the ground and left their bodies up there. This is what most of this language goes back to when you study it in biblical and non-biblical ancient materials. And it was for those who created, uh, um, who committed some of the most heinous crimes. Uh, they would impale them, put them there, leave them there. In fact, their bodies were seldom buried because to not bury someone was one of the most worst disgrace of them for what they did. And it was just gruesome. And this might have been happening here. That's the kind of language that we see. Again, in Deuteronomy, as we'll see as we get into that book, there's laws given that go further to deal with these things. And in Deuteronomy 21, he says, they, a corpse shall not hang overnight. They should be buried the same day. Um, and so that changes. Now, look at verse 6 with me. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came. Now, this is interesting. <laughs> this is where the blatantness comes. Brought to his relatives a Mennonite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all of the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the door of the tent of meetings. Now this plague's taking place. <laughs> People are dying, right? And, and may have been, they, they might be there at the temple because they, they, they refuse to, to be involved in it. We, we, they're just there. They're there before God. They're there before Moses. This group is here. And 
And maybe the plague is brought about because they're not killing the leaders. I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. All of a sudden we know in verse 9 that there's a plague and 24,000 people are dying. And so it doesn't tell us actually when it started. And so you begin to think, well, why is the plague going? It's maybe because they did not obey God and those leaders were not, were not uh, hung or executed. It's hard to know why and where the judgment of this plague started. But always when we see plagues within the Bible, he's judging disobedience. So, so I think we can leave it there. There was some kind of disobedience going. But whatever was happening here, the nation is in crisis here. And some, some of these people, you'll notice in verse 6, they've come to the door of the temple and they're weeping. And doubtlessly they're weeping because of the execution. They're weeping because of plagues. 24,000 people dying in a matter of hours or whatever this is. You're probably related to somebody. 24,000 people. I mean, that's almost the size of Orman's Beach. That's a lot of bodies. And so they've made their way to the temple, and it seems that there were still a few people who, who knew to go to God. They knew to go to the temple. They knew God resided there. They also knew Moses, his great intercessor, there, the one who speaks with God. He's there. And when the people are, I, I mean, when you see this, when people are given over to their flesh, when you think about a type of Romans type of one, he gave them over, he gave them over, he gave them over. It does not matter. They care very little about the character of God or the commands of God. And they can come right into the presence of people who are at the tabernacle. They're pleading with God and they don't care because this man's going to come right through the midst of them with his girlfriend. And do heinous acts. Now, this verse clearly illustrates that according to verse 14, we have a name of a man here, right? The Zimri. He's, he's one who is the son of one of the leaders. He blatantly brings this Mennonite girl into the camp. They're clearly in the sight. You can see it here. Clearly in the sight of the tabernacle, Moses in, in the congregation, thus in the sight of God. And possibly up to this point, you can think about this, maybe this was happening outside the camp. They, they, it's not like they were hiding their sin, but at least they were outside the camp. It was going on out there, not now. It's right into the assembly. And this is where God really reacts. It's under the nose of Moses. It's under the nose of the, of the nation, the congregation. And this Zimri displays just a blatant contempt for the covenants of God. And, and this divine, may, may, I, and I think about this. His own father, and it isn't hard to read his list of who he was in verse 14. His father was a leader. His father was going to die for this sin, and he does not care. See, that's where sin takes you. That's where blatant disobedience to the word of God takes you. I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do, and I don't care how it affects anyone else. It's mine. And so they redefine love. They redefine everything in order to do it. They don't care what it does to their parents. They don't care what it does to the people around them. They don't care what it does to population. They don't care what anything, do they? We're just going to go do it. This is serious. I thought about this. This kid does not care that his father's going to die for his sin. He's not bothered by it. See, See, brothers and sisters, and I, I just meditated on this today. 
sin is attack on God. And for some reason, which I think we all understand, immorality is a particular attack with heavy consequences against God. And he always deals with it. He just deals with it. And we see it. And I don't think people are any different today. Romans 1 just lets us in on his first century, but it hasn't changed. God gave them over, gave them over. And you can read that and you go, man, that's really bad. It's the last verse in Romans 1 that gets your attention, I mean, really good. Romans 1.32 says this, and although, now think about Israel, but think about people who are, maybe someone who was raised in the church or at least has an understanding, uh, some kind of working of the Bible and knows who God is. Although they know the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but they also give heartily approval to those who practice them. That verse is stunning when you think about the reality of where immorality is in our world today. They know it's wrong. God wrote it on their heart. Next chapter, Romans 2, verse 15. They know it's wrong. They know, people know the wages of sin is death. I used to do quite a bit of prison ministry early in my ministry, and I'd sit with guys and talk to them, go visit them. And they would say, look, pastor, I know what I did was wrong. And I know what God says. I said, why'd you do it? And half the time they'd say, I don't know. Just something came over me. And, and then today, it's just applauded. Gene and I, like many of you, we love watching a good movie. We, we love watching a good show, something that's entertaining and sit down, kind of, you know, got a lot of things going on. It's nice to sit down and watch a decent show. You know how hard it is to find someone who's not, or is not immoral, and somebody's being killed? Everybody's dying. If, if that was reality of the world, we didn't have any population, because everybody's killing everybody in every show. There's a, fasc there's a fascination with murder, and immorality is always tied together, and they, they display it really good, right? And they go, oh, that was, that was so good. And if you try to censor them at all, they go absolute ballistic. And this is what's happening here. This son does not care. Can you imagine what's going on? They're weeping before the temple of God. Moses, the intercessor, is there. These people are weeping. This plague is, people are dying by the thousands. And here comes Zemri with his girl. And he's headed to the tent. No care. Just accept me the way I am. You know, I can accept you, but clearly God's not going to. Because you see within this text, this scene starts to unfold. And we see the description of Phineas here and his bloody reaction uh, to the atrocities that are committed against God. And he is, he is God's man. Look at verses 7 through 9. When Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, this is the grandson of Aaron, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent, and he pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body, so that the plague of the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died of the plague were 24,000. Well, apparently, as you read this, after this blatant display in front of God, Moses, and the congregation, this Zimri and his Mennonite girlfriend, they are headed for the tent. 
the word there for tent is, uh, it's a big giant tent, but it's actually tied to a, a inner room. You, you know, if you trace that Hebrew word down, you find it in a room. It, it, this is just explicit, isn't it? They're headed for the bedroom part of the tent. And verse 7 records this swift action of the grandson of Aaron, Phineas. So soon to be the high priest. In fact, if you follow him out, this dude, uh, you really like this guy. You follow him out through the book of Joshua, and, and, and we're going to get to Joshua because that's such a fun book to teach through because they're walking with God. And they are just, you know, they have a few trip-ups, of course, but, man, are they just going through the land and wiping people out. And, you know, in many of the passages, who's out in front with Joshua? Phineas. He's right there. This is quite a guy. He's worth maybe studying a little bit. But here he's recorded, and we see this. And notice in verse 7 that Phineas arises from the middle of the congregation. I like this. What is he doing? He's among the flock. He's doing what he should be doing. He's, he's with them. He's trying to lead them back. He's trying to help the people. I think this is suggesting that he goes, come back to God. Turn away from sin. Come here where you can be reconciled to God. Come into his presence. I think he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. This is what good pastors and, and, and leaders and fathers do. You lead people back to, to God, back to Christ. And up to this point, the sin was hidden outside the camp. Now it's inside the camp, and Phineas says, that's enough. And right here, I think he becomes the hand of God for, for a little bit. He just becomes the hand of God. Now, I, I should shoot a little warning across our bows is be careful, you're not the hand of God. <laughs> I mean, there's been, quote, Christians who have blown up abortion clinics and even killed people at times, we hear, because they think they're the hand of God. We've got to let God, I'm going to talk about that just shortly towards the end, but, but we need to be careful there. But notice in verse 8, it's clear that this couple was involved with sexual immorality, right? The, the language here is, and the way this is framed is so clear there's just little doubt what happens here. Notice they're pierced through the body. The Hebrew word there is pierced through the stomach, through the belly, through the abdomen, through the organs is where Phineas puts this spear. And obviously, I think the punishment's mirroring the sin. In verse 6, this Midianite woman, she is given to this Israelite man named Zimri. Somebody gives her to her. And, and she leads this Israelite man astray, and he willfully, who knows the covenants and commands of God, goes with her. So, so she's doing what she does all the time, right? This is her religion. This is what you do. You prostitute. You do these things. He's the one who knows the covenants of God, and he rejects that. And so in this text, they are pierced through together, and it seems in this very illicit, sinful position. They're pierced through. It's graphic. But what it is, it's God's view of immorality, isn't it? It's, this is just a clear picture. This is what, how God views it, what he does with it. And I, and I think you can, I, I wrote down in my notes, I said, boy, there's three responses that I can have in my heart. I can be judgmental. Yeah, he got what he deserves. I can be humbled. Oh, so glad God has never given me what I deserve. Or, and I think this is one of the problems in the church today, indifferent. Ah, love is love. 
God's word says this. Yeah, I don't, did he really mean that? So I think there's three responses, and we have to be careful, and I think we have to check our heart. And I walked through all three of those in my heart and, and said, Lord, I, I, I love you, and my tendency is to protect you. And, and in the abyss, there's legalism that can come with that, and we can be the judgment, and we can just pound people, and then we're not ready when somebody who has maybe engaged in immorality, and they need help, and they're coming to Christ, and we're not loving enough to be there with them. And maybe that's some of our own children or something. Or... Or there's a reaction of humility, saying, oh God, there go I if it was not for your grace. Realizing that everything that we see in this chapter and every other sin in the Bible, we were capable of and would have done if it was not for the grace of God. And then the indifference is, I think, the problem we struggle with. People are indifferent to what God says anymore today. So now they're cutting their Bibles up because, ah, we don't want that in there and cut that out. And let's just retranslate all this because that's really harsh. We don't want them to read that because they're not like God. So rip out Numbers 25 for sure. Um, you know, and Romans 1's got to go. See, we, we, we're there trying to protect God's reputation as though he needs to be protected. And so this is where we find so many problems. Notice in verses 8, into verse 8 and 9, it tells us that not only were the leaders being executed, but there was open sin happening and this plague was raging through the camp. Raging. I can't imagine 24,000 bodies. I, I've had the great blessing of never being to war, but I have talked to many men who were in Vietnam. But nowhere have I ever heard of 24,000 bodies stacked up in a, in a camp. This is powerful. And it tells you what God thinks of immorality. I mean, remember, they're grumblers and they're complainers and they had their snake bites and they had a lot of those things. But this is probably, I think, the greatest death toll. The long death toll of probably uh, uh, close to a million people that die off in the wilderness is huge and they drop off over 40 years. But this is death right here in such a way. And I, and I thought one more thing. Remember when Balak keeps taking Balaam up to these different points four different times to show him the size, the scope of Israel. And, and we'll see next week just briefly. I'm going to look at 26 just briefly and point out some things as they take a census as how many is there. They're almost the same number, just short of about 2,000 of what they were before they went into the wilderness. Now think if they didn't, that elder generation doesn't die off. And, and think about 24,000 here and, and how many died, I think 6,000 or 7,000 died with a golden bull calf. How many died with a snake bits? How many died with a plague when they had meat in their mouth still? We, I mean, can you imagine how big this nation would be? And yet Balak looked at it and he says they're like the dust of the ground. Because they're going to come up with about uh, 601,000 and some change in the survey, uh, the census in chapter 26. That's men. That's fighting men over 20. So they're 2 million at least, and that's, you know, having one kid with not a whole lot of birth control. I probably don't think that's happening. It's a massive nation, and just think about how big they would have been. I forgot the plague of Korah. Remember that one? A whole lot of them die in that. This would have been a massive nation. Two, I've got to get moving here. A high priest and his death-stopping atonement. This is fascinating. Read verses 10 through 15 with me. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them. 
so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. Now the name of the slain man of Israel who was slain with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Sula, and the leader, a leader, here we go, of the father's uh, uh, household among the Simeonites. The name of the woman, uh, Mennonite woman who was slain was Kuzbi, the daughter of Zur, who was the head of the people of a father's household in Midian. Did you catch that? These were prominent leaders' children here. And how devastating that is to both countries, right? Let alone just Israel. Now, certainly it's interesting to see um, this priest reaction to immorality. It's, and, and God honors it. And his behavior is just greatly rewarded. But, but a priest who takes a spear and pierces two, two people th- through together in the act of immorality, it, you don't really equate that with priests, do you? But this is what happens when people are zealous for the things of God. And remember, these, these priests and the Levites, they were responsible for the tabernacle. And one of the things that, that Numbers chapter 3 and 4 told us, that they were to protect the entrance, the illegal entrance, those who were pro, uh, prohibited from coming into the tabernacle, and they were to pro, uh, protect it and even kill to keep them out of the temple of God. So there certainly is a protection of the things of God, and I think this is within the realm of service, right? But here, Phineas kills sinners, you know, inside the camp. They weren't necessarily trespassers to the tabernacle, but they were clear, clear violations to God's covenant and commands, and he knew that. And, and it seems that God just grips him and moves him to do this. Now, just remember, the priests were there to represent God. They, they were to resemble they would be striving to resemble the character of God. They, he, he was dressed in a way that resembled that. He was to keep his life and his body, his, his home. He was, to, he was to be, strive to be unblemished so that he could be used um, both in his private and public life to personify the character of God. He was to strive for those things. We see those similar things brought over to the pastor's home as well. Now, notice in verses 11 and 13, it tells us that Phineas was reflecting the character of God in some unique ways. Notice in verse 11, he said, he, Phineas, was jealous, this is God speaking, with my jealousy among them. Now that's fascinating. The Bible tells us God is a jealous God. But he's jealous without sin. So he says, he was jealous with my jealousy. So this priest had a jealousy that was like God's. It was free from sin. Now, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever had that <laughs> perfectly. I, I think we do. We stand for truth, right? And we, you know, we, we all had our battles and different things. But this is fascinating. I, I kept thinking about that. Lord, can we have that? Can we have a jealousy that is so perfectly in line with you? Can we have that righteous response? Maybe that's the word we're after. May we have righteous response to difficult situations that are pleasing to you. And that's what this man had. Verse 13, he was jealous for his God. We have a God, and he is our God. He does not belong to the world. <laughs> He's our God. And we should care about how our God is offended. 
I remember many days horseback riding with <laughs> pagan cowboys and all the TV shows are true about them in a lot of ways. They would be using my Lord's name in vain and I would say, I, I always try to address it in some way. And uh, I'd say, hey, do you know him? They go, what are you, what are you talking about? I go, well, you keep talking about God. Do you, do you know him? And, and you actually mentioned Jesus, his son. Do you, I keep hearing you use that. Do you know him? They either right away or I keep on this, or I follow them. And, uh, you know, it's just an opportunity to say, hey, that's my God you're talking about. Do you want to know who this is, who you keep talking about? I, I want them to know he was my God. That's my God. I remember sitting down with someone who was very frustrated with me one day after a sermon of preaching about immorality and walking with God and what that means and challenged me on that I was unloving and caring and I, I, I tried to be very loving and always talk about this would be me if it wasn't for God and, and all of that. And, and finally I said, you, but do you know you're, you're talking about my God? The one who knew me before the foundations of the world, who sent his son to die for me. And, and what, would I, what kind of son of his would I be if I let you slander him continually? And, and what kind of friend would I be who doesn't love you enough to say, stop, do you realize what you're doing? This is God. This is what he says about those things. And again, that has to be done in graciousness and caring, but that's, that's how we handle this. I, I get moving. Uh, Phineas here, he displays the character of God in so many different ways here. And he puts sin to death, right, through righteous anger. We see that here. And the Bible, look at this, says he made atonement for the sons of Israel. Isn't that a fascinating? Well, how did he make atonement? He speared them. That's, that's fascinating. The, the word atonement in, in the Hebrew is kipper, um, used a lot, right, all through the scriptures. And it describes a, an acceptable and pleasing offering to God. That's how it's always used. And, and it's interesting here in this atonement where he atones for the, the nation of Israel by killing these two. There's no animal involved in this, right? They're kind of acting like it. But, but there's no animal. There's no unblemished animal here to take the place of the guilty person. But here the sinners themselves are put to death and there's no necessity for an animal. Now, I want to be very careful here, but, but it makes you think of Christ in some ways, right? And, and God, how he does things. God, in his righteous jealousy, in his righteous anger, he executes perfect judgment upon sin and sinners. And, and you start thinking about this. Okay, so we have Christ on the cross. On the cross, he destroys the power of sin, Satan, and death. But how does he destroy them? The Bible says he is pierced for our transgressions. So you start, you see this. Now, I don't want to equate Christ in any way with this, this wicked couple who dies there. But you begin to think about atonement comes. The Bible says he, is, he pierces them and he atones for the people. And I just couldn't help but think, of it. well, Christ was pierced for me. I mean, we have verses, Isaiah 53, 5, right? He, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and he is scourged. He was scourged, and we are healed. Jesus, the Bible tells us, Paul says, he, God, made him 
who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And, and so he's pierced, and that's where atonement comes from. And it's interesting. It's, it, now, this, wasn't, this is not atonement. This is a stopping. This is a sacrifice in a, in a way. This animal, these people take the place, and it stops the death of it. It's not saving atonement, but it stops the death of it. But Christ was pierced through and stopped death on our behalf. He stopped it. And, and, I, and I got just overwhelmed at it, that Jesus... He, he's pierced for our healing. He's pierced and he's punished for our sin. And he stops. Think about this. Jesus stops for all of us, those of us believers, he stops the eternal plague of death for us. That's amazing. The plague that was taken Scott to the depths of hell was stopped by Christ. Wow. And here's this priest of all people. He's bringing peace between God and man. Paul said, Jesus, he himself is our peace. And so he, he brought peace. It was pierced for our, 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 our sins. And the Old Testament priests here were, they're, look, they're not only representing God to the people, they're representing the people to God. And, and, and this whole nation was called a kingdom of priests and, and, and a holy nation, Exodus 19.6. And, and here this work was to present the, the priest's work was to present a holy nation before God, show them, how them, lead them, how to come to God through sacrifice, the death of the atoning work of something else in their place. That stopped the sin. And again, this is just fulfilled in Christ and so much better. This is just a, a mere shadow, a very uh, dark shadow in some ways pointing forward. And you notice because he does this, Phineas, this high priest-to-be, is given God's covenant of peace, verse 12. Notice that, God's covenant of peace. Verse 13, it's called the covenant of perpetual priesthood. His name's associated with some of the greatest victories of the land. First Chronicles chapter 6, verse 4, he's in the lineup. He's, he's two names behind Aaron as, as it goes through the chronological order of all the priests. But he is a type. And he's an amazing type because he's pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to just rattle off some verses real quick when we think about Jesus Christ and his high priest role. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore he, Christ, had to be made like his brother in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Hebrews 3, 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle, the high priest of our confession. Chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. This hope we have as an anchor of our soul. Hope both sure and steadfast and the one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become the high priest forever. Hebrews 7, 25 through 28. Therefore, he is able to also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, exalted above heaven, who does not need daily like those high priests who offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. He's the one pierces what the Bible's telling us. The law appoints men of high priests who are weak, 
But the word of the oath which came after the law points a son made perfect forever. Hebrews 8.1. We have a high priest, such a high priest, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Chapter 9, verse 11 and following. But his but, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not, of the, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having attained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctified the cleansing of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself, Without blemish to God, cleansing your conscience from dead works to serve a living God. Jesus Christ is the perpetual high priest. Everything Phineas did was pointing forward to him. And it's so interesting, he is on both ends of it. He's the one being pierced, and he's the one bringing atonement. So fascinating to kind of think through that. Last real quick thought here. Three, those who sinfully entice God's people will be met with his righteous judgment. And, and we see it even in this, in this, in Israel. But this is a promise for us as well. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, be hostile to the Midianites and strike them. For they have been hostile to you with their tricks with, with which they ha- have deceived you in the affairs of Peor, in the affairs of Cosby, the daughter of the leader of Midian, her sister who ha- was slain on the day the plague of the plague because of Peor. Well, these final verses in chapter 25 just tell us that God commands Moses to fight against the Midianites, to strike them down. And it's because of their evil plor to lure Israel away from the living God into immorality and idolatry. And, and I think, I, I, I thought, maybe God is capitalizing on Phineas's godly character. Now go get him. Act like Phineas. Be jealous for me. And I think he's motivating them. And we know history tells us that they, and we'll see in the next couple chapters, they just wipe them out. I think this is, again, a lesson of how God reacts to sinfulness, willful sinfulness. And, and, it, and it teaches us that God sees this. And throughout time, God has raised up law enforcement and armies and so forth. And we have seen it in our generations and it's always been around. He raises up those to punish those who go against him. And sometimes it does not come in our timing, but always comes in his sovereign time. Always. And that's what Romans 13 tells us, that God will bring about these ones, these, these rulers, these people who are come, who, who will take care of evil. And if you don't do evil, you should not fear them. But he'll bring about people, and he says they're ministers of God for good, and, and he, brings, he does that. It's sad where our military situation is now because of leadership, but that was raised up and fought a lot of wild stuff out there. And not saying that our soldiers are all Christians and perfect in any way. We know some of those atrocities happen, but God still uses uh, sinful man to bring about his righteous purposes. And we can trust in that. And the, and the church is taught to trust God. And, and he tells us that, that he deals with things. Galatians chapter 5, he says, look, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, social enmities, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, drunkenness, carousing, all these things, I warn you, you will not have a part of the kingdom of God. He does it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Don't be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, uh, revilers, swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then we love the verse 11. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You were declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of God. And so we realize that Today, we still have all these things. If you go through that list, it's quite a list, isn't it? And somewhere in there, you and I are in there, right? Throws in those little ditties like outburst of anger. I was doing so good. I didn't have any sorcery going on. (laughs) So he gets us. And then finally, he says, covetous. Oh, man, that's the silent sin. No one sees that. All of those will not inherit the kingdom of God. Unless you were washed. Unless you were set apart by God and sanctified and justified, declared righteous by his son's finished work. He's still after sin. Don't don't lose hope, believer. Things that are going on in our world, he is keeping record. Remind yourself, read the end of Revelations. He opens the books and he judges them according to their deeds. He's keeping track. I pray they come to know Jesus. And they do not stand before him as judge. Lord, thank you for this passage. It's fairly graphic. But no more graphic than what's on display everywhere. But what we do see is your graphic response. In one aspect, Lord, it's comforting that you see the wickedness. It's not hidden from you and you deal with it. On another side, Lord, we... All of us, I think every believer in this room would say, "Mm, there go I if it were not the grace of God. And yet in all of it, in this very graphic story, we know there was one pierced for us. But he was sinless. He stopped the plague of death in our case. And he was the ultimate high priest who engages in the deeds of God, is jealous for his father's righteousness and, and, and character. And yet he humbled himself, became like a man, and died even the death on a cross so that we would be set free from the stranglehood, the piercing of sin. That's beautiful, Lord. That's beautiful. Thank you for dying for us, Lord Jesus. Thank you for being raised from the dead, having victory, displaying victory over our sin, Satan, and death. And thank you that we can strive by your spirit, by the word of God, by all these beautiful spiritual disciplines you give us, to refrain from immorality and this whole other list of things. We can fight now through the help of the spirit. We can meditate on things that are good and pure and right. We can raise our children to to know the Lord Jesus, point them in that direction, teach them the morals of God, helping them understand without salvation through Jesus, they'll they'll never see him. We can point them there. We can have a great effect as grandparents on our grandchildren. We certainly live lives that are different than the world, and when asked why we are not like them, we can tell them the glorious message of a God who saves us us from sin. 
So, Lord, I pray you give us opportunities, each and every person in this room, that we would live lives that are so distinctly different from the world that people would ask, why are you this way? And we could share our Jesus with them. How he was pierced for us. How he stopped the plague of death in our life. And we can give you glory for that. Lord, thank you that you do take care of sin. We're hopeful of that. We see things going on in our world that is, is hard on us, God, as humans. It's hard to see where things are going. But you promised you will, you will not let sin go unjudged. You will deal with that. We pray for our family members and friends and loved ones that may be engaged in some of these things we looked at tonight. We pray that we would have lives that are much different than them, but lives that are humble and ready to tell them the answer of the way out of that sin. And so give us opportunity. I know many, even in this room, who, who have this issue going on. And, and give them strength. Give them strength not to compromise, but lovingly speak the truth and stand for it. It may take a long time. It may take years. But, Lord, as long as we have breath, may we honor you with our life. And, Lord, we ask that you would use that in our loved ones and our family members and our friends who are caught in sin that has such deep consequences, let alone leads right to hell. So, Lord, please use us in that. Lord, thanks for these folks tonight. Thanks for bringing them out tonight. I know so many trying to get ready for school with children. and Some are working long hours. I'm so grateful to have them here, Lord. Bless them. May we give us good rest tonight, Lord. May we be ready to serve you and live for you tomorrow morning. In Jesus' name, amen.